If you would turn your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 5. We're going to be looking at the fifth chapter of Jeremiah tonight before we get into that. I've got the prayer list on my cell phone. I'm not checking my text. So uh, let's uh, go to the Lord and present these prayer requests to the Lord, knowing we want to add a name. There's a young fellow, six-year-old boy named Grayson, who had a, a seizure underwater today. And his life is on the line. So let's pray for Grayson. Father of mercy, we're reminded in news like that how dependent we are on your mercy. Lord, you give us mercy at times that we don't even recognize it. Most of the time, we don't even recognize your mercies on us. We just have glimpses of it. We're, we're so prone to wonder because we... We don't revel in your mercy. In times like this, remind us how desperate we are. We present grace unto you, Lord. We present this little boy to you. We pray for grace and mercy. We pray for his physical salvation. Certainly, we pray for his spiritual salvation. We pray, Lord, that you would save this little boy. Give the doctors, nurses, discernment, wisdom, skill. We confess you are the chief physician. Lord, we pray for peace on his family as well. Lord, I want to pray for Audrey. We continue to pray, Lord, for her cancer treatments, for sustaining grace. Jennifer, the Stratton's neighbor who has cancer throughout her body, we present her to you, Lord. How alarming that must be we pray for grace and mercy there bobby van hooser for his leukemia present him to you leah huff and her continued lung problems lord i pray that she could get a correct diagnosis so that they could treat it right and accordingly patsy drury hunt um, there are cancer spots on her liver uh, we pray for her for grace for kathy drury and her back problems, Lord, that have controlled her life for the last decade. Present her to you for Bill as he cares for her. Matt and Alyssa, as they continued their training for the mission field. And we pray for them and their families as they are apart from them. Lord, we also pray for Carol as she continues with her cancer treatments. Thank you, Lord, for how successful and fruitful they've been. For Vinnie, Lord, as she recovers from back surgery, we pray for that. For Grace there and Chad, uh, the Alcorn son-in-law, continue to pray for his, his recovery. Pray for Don's brother Ron, who has a tumor on his optic nerve, or by it. And we pray for grace and mercy and healing there, Billy Griffin, and his unspoken. Pray for Philip Campbell's uh, Lord in his stroke. We pray for recovery there. We lift up our Utah mission trip and our team. We pray for protection. Physical, spiritual, emotional. Pray for bonding time, that their relationships will be strengthened. And we pray for open doors for the gospel. Pray for Annie Eads, Lord, and her needs. We present her to you, Chris Dennis. Pray for recovery from his stroke. Lisa's business, we pray for wisdom. In that, we lift up Carolyn Hatfield, who has pain in her stomach. We pray that they could diagnose this and treat it. Continue to pray for Lucille as she recovers from her surgery. Lord Josh Wilhoit, we pray, Lord, for 
Grace as he goes through radiation treatments. The nephew of John and Laura lift up Sandy Smith in rehab. We present that situation to you, Tommy Kirby. We pray for grace and mercy in his situation. Joe, Joe Dooley is test for possible cancer. Lord, we just pray for peace and grace and healing. Carrie Robertson, who has lymphoma, we present this situation to you. We pray for the Tibbets, who are beginning the adoption process. That's exciting, Lord. And we know that you have set a little baby apart for this wonderful couple. We pray that you would meet their financial needs in that. Lift up David Chapman, who's recovering from thyroid surgery. We pray, Lord, for grace and mercy in that situation. William Wiedemeyer, who has cancer, we pray for your grace in that difficult situation. Pray for Dolly. She is having tests run. We just pray, Lord, that these tests would be good news. We pray that we would hear good news from those tests. We pray for our church. Lord, we'd continue to pray for you to build your church. Um, your son purchased this church with his blood, and we pray we would be faithful stewards of what you're doing. Uh, Lord, we pray for lost family members, and it's likely all of us have lost family members. We pray for salvation. We pray for the gospel to increase in our families. Jeff Wolf family, we pray for that family and the unspoken, Judy Smith, the unspoken there. J.W. Wilson, stroke, we lift them, uh, this person to you, Ron Michaels. We lift up Nathan Bentley, who was in an accident and may need surgery. Summer, we pray for her situation, pain, deep pain in her jaw to the point of nausea and vomiting. We pray for healing and grace. Lift up Chris as he goes on his chainsaw ministry to Dayton. Larry Sheffield's dad friend died this week we just pray for peace there and lord we pray for all of these situations that if any of them are lost that you would use their difficulties and struggles to draw them to your son lord for those who are saved that you would use it to conform them to the image of your son lord now as we come to jeremiah 5 give us ears to hear we ask this in jesus name amen it's been said that the last people believe in a coming judgment the more apt they are to turn this world into the very hell that they deny I read that in a book a few years ago and it has always stuck to me the less a person believes in a future reckoning a coming judgment the more apt that person is to turn this world into the very hell that that person denies. Think about this. None of the, the moral monster dictators of the 20th century believed in an afterlife. There's not one exception to that. Not one of them believed in a future reckoning. You have Mao, China, Stalin in Russia, Hitler in Germany, Idi Amin in Uganda, and Popot in Cambodia. None of these men believed in a future accounting, a future reckoning. And because their pride was completely unchecked by fear of eternal judgment, they created the closest thing to hell on earth that we have seen in history. 
Ian Murray, and I recommend him, a wonderful historian. Read everything that he writes. In his book, The Old Evangelicalism, he says, Wheresoever God works with power for salvation upon the minds of men, there will be some discoveries of a sense of sin, of the danger of the wrath of God. The knowledge of God does not first come to sinners with comfort. Rather, it is intensely disturbing. I think that is a, a very accurate word. Think about the Apostle Paul as he's speaking to the great philosophers. If you had an opportunity to speak to the great philosophers produced by the Ivy League, what would you say to them first? Well, the Apostle Paul had that opportunity at Mars Hill. Here's what he said to them. Acts 17, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And then a few years later, he had the opportunity to speak to Felix, who was the successor to Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea. Now this man was, he was a head case. He was a, an arrogant, um, harsh man. And Paul is under his rule. He is in prison. And he gets an opportunity to speak to Felix. And what does he say to him? Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. That was Jeremiah's commission as well. Notice with me in verse 1 of chapter 5. Again, chapters 2 to 6 are taking place at the time of great reform. King Josiah has found the book of the law. There are many scholars who believe the priest had intentionally hidden the law. The priests were corrupt. But they had found the law, and Josiah, being a godly king, was bringing reform. But external reform without an internal circumcision of the heart and repentance and faith, all it does is produce religious externalism. But that externalism can deceive you into thinking that you are godlier than you really are. And, and that's the context as... Jeremiah is preaching in chapters 2 to 6, and it's creating all kinds of pushback. Notice in verse 1, he says, Run to and fro, uh, fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man. God is saying, look for one. If you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth that I may pardon her. If, I can, if you will find one, I, may, I will bring pardon to Jerusalem. Now this is the first recorded symbolic act that uh, is performed by Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel perform the most of these symbolic acts. We're going to see more of these in the book of Jeremiah. They're often called enacted parables. And they function to, to get the listener's attention. 
And in order to communicate the moral corruption of Jerusalem, God offered to spare the city if one righteous, one truthful person could be found. Of course, that message echoes Genesis 18 when God tells Abraham that he's going to pour out judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham intercedes and boils it down to this. If you can find ten... In Sodom, I will spare the city. Of course, he could not find city. Well, in this case, they're worse than Sodom. Because God says you won't even find one. That's the language that's being used here. All you're going to find is superficial external religiosity. Verse 2. Though they say, as the Lord lives, yet they swear falsely. In other words, they speak religious language. They have the theological terms down. They sound really pious. They're religious people. Remember, Josiah has brought reform and their words are reformed. As the Lord lives, they have God's name on their lips, but His glory is far from their minds. And I think this is a warning for us. The chosen few, the Sunday night crowd. It's easy to think God must be impressed with me because everybody else is at the park at 6 o'clock on Sunday night. But here we are. But if we go through the motions, sing the songs, pray the prayers, and doze in and out of the sermons, we're committing perjury in the house of God. That's essentially what he is indicting these people for. And Jeremiah is on this research mission and he's convinced that he's going to find that righteous person among the poor. Why? Usually it's because the poor are more ripe for the things of God because it's hard for a rich man to get to heaven. Poor men do not have all the crutches that the rich have. Verse 3. O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth? You have struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You have consumed them, but they refused to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. Then I said, these are only the poor. They have no sense. For they do not know the way of the Lord. And so he found those who had endured suffering, struck down by the hardships of life. But he learned that these hardships had only made their faces harder. Harder than rocks. They had refused to repent. Hardship doesn't necessarily make a person ripe for the gospel. Hardship uh, could be akin to boiling a, an egg versus boiling a potato. When you boil an egg, it hardens, right? Some people go through struggles, and instead of being softened by those struggles, they're hardened by those struggles. They become very bitter. If you boil a potato, what happens? It softens. And so everybody 
is either an egg or a potato when it comes to hardship. And what he had discovered among the poor was not that it had made them soft for the things of God. Their hearts had been hardened. And then he's going to attribute that to likely biblical illiteracy. Obviously, among the poor, they would not have the opportunities for education that the more well-to-do would have had. And so he's reasoning, what can you expect from people who can't read their Bible? So now he's going to turn to the leaders in the culture. He says, they do not know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. Verse 5, I will go to the great, and I will speak to them. For they know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. But they all alike had broken the yoke. They had burst the bonds. To his dismay, the great, as he calls them, were no better than the poor. And he compares their religion to that of an ox that rebels against its master and breaks its yoke. At least the poor disobey God out of ignorance. But this is complete defiance. And for such a people, judgment is inevitable. Verse 6, Therefore, a lion from the forest, and I do believe this could refer to the Assyrians, but it's likely the, the Babylonians. Therefore, a lion from the forest shall strike them down. That's not a real lion. That is a metaphor. A wolf from the desert shall devastate them. A leopard is watching their cities Everyone who goes out of them shall be torn in pieces because their transgressions are many, their apostasies are great. And as if God is reasoning how he could ever forgive them, he asks, notice verse 7, how can I pardon you? It's as if God is saying, now this is anthropomorphic language, anthropopathic language where we attribute human-like emotions to God. God is omniscient. But this is for the benefit of the reader so we can, be, we can just get a small glimpse of the pathos of God. It's like he's having this debate. How can I pardon you? I want to pardon you. But your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are no gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the houses of oars. Now that could be metaphorical language, but it's likely the, the, the sexual sins committed in the worship of the false gods. It's horrific language, we know that. Instead of giving thanks for the Lord's provision, they gave credit to the false gods. Now verse 8 this describes their carnality in some of the strongest language found in the Old Testament. They were well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing for his neighbor's wife. It's horrific language. And the Lord, he wants to forgive them, but in the absence of repentance, no evidence of repentance, Punishment had to come. Verse 9, Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord, and shall I not avenge myself on a nation 
such as this. Now having established you know, the necessity to punish, God orders the enemy to begin its devastation. Now here's the thing. The enemy does not know, and you can see this in Isaiah 10. You can read that sometime, where the Assyrians there are the axe in the uh, woodman's hands. And the Assyrians don't recognize that they're a tool of God. They have their own motives, all right? And in the same way, the Babylonians don't recognize that they're being used of the true and living God. For them, it's about expanding their borders. It's about taking over other lands. Verse 10. Go through her vine rows and destroy, but make not a full end. Strip away her branches for they're not the Lord's. And so here Israel was planted to be this kind of choice vine bearing um, or this uh, fruit bearing vine. But now the vine is going to be plucked up. But there's one uh, restriction to this. He says don't destroy them completely. And yet even all of this in these verses Israel's indifference is very palatable to the threat of punishment. Verse 11. For the house of Israel, the house of Judah, have been utterly treacherous to me, declares the Lord. They have spoken falsely of the Lord and have said, He will do nothing. No disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. The prophets will become wind. The Lord is not in them. The word is not in them. Thus shall it be done to them. And so they presumed that God's promise to bless Israel precluded the possibility of, of judgment. We'll see that even more clearly in chapter 6 and verse 7. And who fostered that belief system in these people? It was their false prophets. There were more false prophets than there were faithful prophets in the land. George Whitfield, when he preached on this passage, George Whitfield, the great evangelist of the first great awakening in 1740 in that period of time, his best friend was John Wesley. I'll just to give you a kind of a, a comparison there of time. He says, as God can send a nation of people no greater blessing." than to give them faithful, sincere, upright ministers. So the greatest curse that God can possibly send upon a people in this world is to give them over to blind, unregenerate, carnal, lukewarm, unskillful guides. And that's why Jeremiah here calls these false prophets, notice what he calls them. He calls them wind. The prophets will become Wind. The Hebrew word is ruah, ruah, which is also translated, and the context matters, as spirit. All right? Now, I think that's, it's a play on words. A prophet is either filled with the spirit of the Lord, and therefore he will pronounce the very words inspired by the spirit, or he will just be blowing wind. And in this particular case, these are just windbags. And there's a lot of windbags in the world. And Jeremiah would indicate that the prevalence of windbags 
is evidence of judgment. It may be a judgment on a culture. It may be a judgment on a church where he's going to turn the lights out on that church. But there really is no gray in the matter. You either are a man who pronounces the words of given to him by the Spirit of God, which is the Word of God, or you're just a windbag. Now, to v- convince them here, Jeremiah is going to get more explicit. I love this right here in verse 14. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth a fire, and this people would, and the fire shall consume them. This has nothing to do with the eloquence or the talents or the giftings, the abilities of Jeremiah. This has everything to do with the very words that God has given him. Uh, Fire here is a frequent Old Testament metaphor, New Testament metaphor as well, for judgment. Remember all the way back in chapter 1, when he had commissioned him, when he says, I am calling you to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overthrow, to build and to plant. And so that overthrowing ministry has to take place before the building and planting ministry. Verse 15, Behold, I am bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation. A nation whose language you do not know. Nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open tomb. They are all mighty warriors. There is this horrific scene in the movie Platoon, a war movie that came out in the, the 1980s. And you have this American outpost that is it's attacked by the Viet Cong. And so they radio headquarters, and they remain on their radio. They keep radio contact. But then when the Viet Cong win that skirmish, all the operator can hear through his headsets, the operator at headquarters, is the Vietnamese language. It's a horrifying scene. In that case, the battle has been lost, and the foreign tongue is the the exclamation point. That's what he's saying here. When this happens, there will be a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. And verse 17 describes what happens when this is going to happen when this invasion takes place. Notice verse 17. They shall eat up your harvest and your food. They shall eat up your sons and your daughters. This is not cannibalism. This is metaphorical language they shall eat up your flocks your herds they shall eat up your vines and your fig trees your fortified cities in which you trust they shall beat down with the sword and so the enemy is going to live off the land that they occupy and they're going to destroy everything else and just this language is metaphor for killing for famine for disease For enslavement, all the consequences of conquest. And archaeologists 
have discovered that this kind of scorched earth policy was just the norm for the Babylonians. So that's just another reason we know this is the Babylonians they're referring to because this scorched earth policy was the way they did things. And it's all the things the false prophets had denied would happen. Verse 18, but even in those days, declares Lord, I will not make a full end of you. Once again, there's this promise that destruction will not be total, but it will be sure. Verse 19. And when your people say, why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? What does that sound like? That sounds like a victim. We don't deserve this. What does that indicate? Too low a view of God, too high a view of ourselves. If you have too low a view of God, too high a view of yourself, that means you also have too low a view of sin. So they're asking, why has the Lord done all these things to us? You shall say to them, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve foreigners in a land that is not yours. What does that mean? They will be taken into exile. That's exactly what happened. They will spend 70 years in exile. And Jeremiah is going to be the one who prophesies those 70 years. I think it's in chapter 25 of Jeremiah where he prophesies that remarkable prophecy and so they're going to be taken into this land that we know to be the Babylonians verse 20 declare this in the house of Jacob proclaim it in Judah hear this O foolish and senseless people who have eyes but see not who have ears but hear not So their problem is not intellectual, it's spiritual. They have, they do not have spiritual eyes and ears or a spiritual mind. All of these things are closed to God. I found this statement by Dr. William Plummer, who was a pastor, American pastor and theologian in the 1800s. And I was reading this, this book on sin, and I came across this statement that I think applies here, though he was not referring to the to the Israelites in this particular case he was talking about the unregenerate person he's talking about the unconverted person and the language he used is beautiful but sobering he says of the unregenerate person and that applies to these they could see nothing of holiness in holiness nothing of good in good Nothing of evil in evil, nor anything of sinfulness in sin. Nay, it is so darkened, talking about the mind, that he fancies himself to see good and evil, and evil and good, happiness and sin, and misery in holiness. Think about that. Happiness in sin, misery in holiness. Isn't that... The natural disposition. God is holding out on me. So holiness represents misery. And what he is holding out from me is where true happiness is found. That's the way the unregenerate mind thinks. Verse 22. Do you not fear me, 
declares the Lord. Do you not tremble before me? I placed the sand as the boundary for the sea. A perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. They were as foolish and senseless as the lifeless gods they worship. Why? Because they did not fear God. What is the fear of God? Well, the fear of God is not some fretful kind of anxiety that we feel when an abusive power over us, you know, slaps us when we have crossed the line. The fear of God is this continuous awareness that I'm in the presence of a holy and just and almighty and awesome God. And that every word, deed, thought, motivation, and action is open before Him. And I will be held accountable for them. I think that is a, a, a helpful definition to define the fear of God. And He says... These people did not fear God. As a result, unlike the sea, which does not cross its boundaries, Judah had violated the moral restrictions placed on them as God's covenant people. And they also refused to recognize the Lord was the source of their reign. Verse 23, but this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone away. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear our God who gives the rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain, and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these away. Your sins have kept good from you. Boy, isn't that a beautiful statement? I say beautiful. It's eloquent. But it's true then, and it's every bit as true now. This is a good verse to memorize. Your iniquities have turned these away. Your sins have kept good from you. We believe that God is holding out. Fundamentally, He's not good. That's the natural mind. And it's actually the reverse. Your sins have kept good from you. The, the Baal cult, or the, the Baal cult, if, you, if you're hanging around Moeller, claimed that... It was Baal who brought the rains, and yet it's the Lord who controls the rain. As he showed in Elijah's days, remember that. And it was their covenantal unfaithfulness. Remember, one of the curses of covenantal unfaithfulness was he would withhold the rain. Now, we're not under uh, the Mosaic law, but there, there are... There are implications that we can draw from that. God does not bless disobedience. And our sin, as he says so eloquently here, our sin is the reason good is withheld from us. Mark, I mean, I, that's one of the reasons I love Jeremiah is his eloquence. Now the Lord is going to Name some of those sins that was responsible for the judgment. Verse 26. For wicked men are, among, are found among my people. 
they lurk like fowlers lying in wait. We don't know exactly what a fowler is. Um, they tell us that the Hebrew is just not clear there. They set a trap. They catch men. Like a cage full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and rich at others' expenses. I don't think he's in any way advocating wealth distribution here, but he is saying you have, you have made yourself wealthy and rich at the expenses of others. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper. And they do not defend the rights of the needy. Shall I not punish them for these things? Declares the Lord. Shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? I've just laid out the case. Would it not be unjust of me? He is saying. Would it not be unrighteous of me? And if you think about it, there's nothing uniquely wicked about these people. We're looking in the mirror. At least before our conversion. We're looking in the mirror here. Verse 30. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. And the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. My goodness. They love it. Itching ears being scratched by the prophets and by the priest. Was this written in the 21st century? I'm starting to think so. Jeremiah is like a living prophet, isn't he? And then the most haunting question. Maybe the most important question that could ever be asked in the history of man is the last line of chapter 5. Reading this last line, and we're about to read it, was worth the price of admission tonight. It was worth you coming out tonight because we all need to have this question tattooed on our brain. But what will you do when the end comes? That, that's a haunting question. And skeptics, atheists, agnostics, no one can deny that reality. There's an end coming. Now you can come up with all kinds of things like reincarnation. But we know deep down that's nonsense. What will you do when the end comes? The end comes. It is the question of questions. And that's why now, listen, there, the end here, there, there's a multiple fulfillments of the end here. The end he's referring to most specifically is the end of Jerusalem. The end of the temple. The end of the Davidic monarchy when, when Babylon comes in and just wreaks havoc and destroys everything. But that in itself is a prototype of something even greater to come. The great day of judgment. What will you do when the end comes? You're prospering now, but it's an illusion. 
It's an absolute illusion. The question is, what will you do when the end comes because it's coming? And that's why it's not an overstatement for Jeremiah to use this language in verse 30 of appalling and horrible. Prophets who claimed to be speaking for God were preaching lies. What were they preaching? Peace, peace, when there was no peace. Judgment's not coming. You're the people of the promise. You're the, you're the people of the temple. You are the holy nation. Judgment's not coming to you. And the priests ruled by their own authority. And this is the lie of liberalism. And liberalism is alive and well. We need to keep that in mind. It has not, it's even alive and well in Southern Baptist Convention. Without question. And liberalism stems back to that original doctrine that was denied in Genesis 3. You will not die. That's the first doctrine that's ever denied in Scripture. Isn't that amazing? You will not die. It's what the serpent said to Adam and Eve. It's the deception. I'm reading a book on audio, a new book that just came out on Winston Churchill. I'm fascinated with this man. Uh, but Neville Chamberlain, y'all know he was the prime minister in 1940 when he went and had a meeting with Hitler. And his conclusion is, we have achieved peace in our time. Famous last words. But what's astonishing in all of this is that Judah loved it so. Natural humanity has a taste for falsehood. We do. We just want our ears scratched. So, let's go back to the original question, because I think that first question frames the whole chapter. Jeremiah needed one good man. Jeremiah thought he could find one, and then God made his case, and Jeremiah did his research, and he found out there was no good man, there was no truthful man, there was no just and righteous man. So if no one is righteous... And Paul makes that point, doesn't he? Romans 3, there is, after, in Romans 1, he, he exposes the, the sin of the, of the pagan. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. And then in Romans 2, 1 to 16, he goes after the moralist. And he shows that they are no better off than the pagan. And then he goes after the Jew, Romans 2, 17 and following. They have the oracles of God, but they don't do anything with it. And his conclusion is this. There's none righteous. No, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They have all gone out of the way. They have together uh, the poison of asp is under their lips. The way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. That's the conclusion, Paul says, for all of humanity. And so if no one is righteous, what will we do when the end comes? It's the question. And Paul says in Romans 6, the wages of sin for the unrighteous... Is what? Death. And even the atheists have to admit in their finer moments that sin deserves to be punished. A Time once published a story, Time magazine, about the atrocious things that the mass murderer Richard Speck, y'all remember Richard Speck? Not the things he did before he was arrested, 
But the things he was doing in prison that I could never, if I shared them with you, y'all would have a new pastor in a few, few weeks. I would be fired. And the caption of the story read this. Now, this is in time. Not the bastion of conservatism. The wages of sin is dot, dot, dot. And underneath that, that caption was this quote from Speck. If they only knew how much fun I was having in here, they would turn me loose. And the reason time ran that is they wanted the people reading that to have, be outraged by it. And they did. They were outraged. Why were they outraged? Because every human has an inherent sense of justice. That's why we love vigilante movies. That's why Charles Bronson is our favorite actor from the 70s. And Liam Neeson, is that his name? Is our favorite movie of the 21st century, favorite actor of the 21st century. We have this sense of justice, but here's the problem. Justice is bad news for the unrighteous. Because there is none, except there is. The promise of forgiveness is predicated on finding one righteous person. Jeremiah couldn't find him, but we know who he is. And I'll close with this short little passage from Romans 5. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man. Who's that one man? It's the one righteous one. The one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. That's Adam. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Why? Because he's a righteous man and his righteousness is imputed to those who believe. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness. Now what is that act? It is his incarnation, it is His obedience, full obedience, heart, mind, soul, and strength, full obedience to God's law, this one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jeremiah couldn't find him, but in the fullness of time, God revealed him. And so there is the answer to the dilemma that we see found in Jeremiah 5. Let's pray.